have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives all the more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Gospel reading this morning is from the book of Mark. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, and who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. 
for God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on... um, these familiar words of Jesus, that you'd help us to understand them and understand how we might be a community that doesn't go away grieving, but we receive them and we begin to inhabit and embody them uh, in our own lives and in our world. Would you meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit, as we think on these things together in Jesus' name? Amen. So I want to ask you a question. The question is this. When you think about the the salvation of God or the kind of salvation that's particularly described in the scripture, does it feel impossible to you? Does it feel impossible to you? Now, when I think about that question for myself, my mind can run in a variety of directions. So sometimes I, you know, maybe you've just read the newspaper, you've seen some, your feed, or maybe you've just got the citizen app, right, on your telephone and you know what happened in your neighborhood an hour ago, right? Uh, And so you're thinking about just the perplexity of problems, like the chronic reality of social injustice, of crime, of, of, of chronic poverty, or, or uh, problems with literacy, or problems with hunger, and so on and so forth. You're just aware of this, right, in our community, uh, close at hand, and in our world further away. And when you think about that, right up against the kind of promises about God's kingdom of justice and peace and goodness and truth, it's easy, I think, to sort of feel naive, like this is, this is impossible, like these are ridiculous promises that God is making because nothing in our world, right, seems to be going that way, right? I mean, do you, do you ever feel that impossibility, that level of impossibility with, with the promises of Jesus, right? Sometimes I feel that it's impossible because I'm, it's just a moment in my life, you know, maybe you've just stumbled through that moment of confessing our sins as we did just a moment ago, right? And so you've in a very pointed way had to think about, like, where did I struggle with the commands of God last week? Like, where did I not love not only God, but my neighbor as myself, right? Where did I struggle in some practical way? Or maybe you're aware of just the chronic sort of way in which you and I find ourselves in the same broken pattern of our humanity over and over and over again. And so you just want to sort of throw up your arms and say, I'll never change. Or, more likely, you're throwing up your arms about someone else and saying, they'll never change. Have you ever felt that way? Like the impossibility of the kind of life that God is calling us to. It just feels enormous. It feels like a mountain that you'll never be able to climb, right? But, but there's a different kind of impossibility that the text that we're looking at this morning pulls us to think about. It's not the impossibility of the enormity of the problems of the world, and it's not the impossible sort of uh, challenge that we face with our own struggles of sort of getting it right or living differently or loving better in some way. It is the impossibility of grace itself 
I don't like a relationship that is based on grace because it always calls upon me to open my hands from around my life in ways that are just profoundly uncomfortable. And everything that we're reading in the text that we read, right, all, all of these paragraphs, that they, they feel a little bit disconnected perhaps, but they're all connected with that very notion of just the impossibility of grace. That we actually have a love-hate relationship with grace. Uh, the kind of relationship that God invites us into. And so we want to think about that this morning in the context of these stories. And the central story is the story of the wealthy man who is probably a landowner of some sort. Think small business owner in our own contemporary sort of vernacular or context, if you will. But before we get there, we have to think about Jesus' circling back to an earlier teaching that we've seen week after week over the last few weeks, this teaching about children, right? <laughs> Remember back to the very first time that we begin to hear Jesus' teaching about children? It comes in the context of the disciples having an argument. Do you remember what the argument was about? Who is the greatest, right? So they're, they're conflicted among one another, right? It's just this tiny little community, right? This is not a big group. And inside of their little group, they're wondering, well, you know, who's, who's greater than the other, right? Is it James? Is it, is it John? Is it Peter, who talks a lot, is it, and so on and so forth, right? They're arguing about who is the greatest. And then Jesus does what, remember? He says, whoever welcomes the least of these, or the children, right? He takes a child into the very center of the room. He says, whoever welcomes one of these children, right, welcomes me. Well, it, it, it demonstrates themselves to be what? The greatest. So a very core teaching that we've seen throughout these weeks as we've looked at the next story after the next story, Jesus sort of keeps coming back and wrestling with how do we welcome the least of these? How do we welcome the outsider? How do we welcome, right, a, a child, someone who has no status, right? That's the point. And here Jesus circles back to this moment when the disciples just don't get it. Because they're not welcoming the children. And here's very specifically, what are they doing? They are telling parents who are literally bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed, to stop, to go away, to leave Jesus alone. And Jesus becomes indignant in this particular moment, right? He says, no, no. We welcome the children, right? He's indignant with the disciples. He's maybe even angry with the disciples as they, as they do this. He says, you know, don't stop the little ones from coming because the kingdom of God belongs to them. And not only that, anyone, yourself included, anyone that wants to receive this salvation, that wants to receive this kingdom of God, has to become like a child. Now, again, don't overly romanticize that, <laughs> you know, because th this is about status. This is about being statusless, right? Remember, that's what this reference, this metaphor of children is all about. It's not that we look on children and say, oh, they're so cute. They're so cuddly. Who wouldn't want to be cuddled and swept up like that and cared for so swaddlingly, you know? Th this is not that. This is Jesus saying, look, if you want to be a person that receives the kingdom that God is actually bringing in the person of who Jesus is, you must become 
statusless. Sit with that for a moment. We are sitting in the community of the University of Pennsylvania. Statusless, friends. How does that feel? Because everything in our lives that we have learned, that you and I have learned, is that we, we always are thinking about our value add. And we're always thinking about how do we get more so that we have more value add to whatever community we seek to join. But when Jesus is talking to the disciples about the coming of the kingdom of God, it is nothing in my hands I bring simply to your cross I cling. It is always about somehow me, you, divesting ourselves of status, standing in an empty-handed way before the God of the universe who would give you everything if you could just take your hands off your own life and open them to receive this gift of grace. And so Jesus has become like a child. And this whole text, even this interaction about the wealthy young man, right, is about that. It's about becoming statusless before the God who would give you everything. So let's think about that particular story for just a moment, which is really a gift to us because when we hear the, the metaphor of children or the illustration of children or the call to become like children, right, it's easy to sort of let it hang out in the stratosphere and think about it in very abstract ways. But what Jesus wants you to do is to think concretely and interestingly enough, here's an actual interaction that Jesus had with a real person in his day who had status. And Jesus invites him to a very different place to live with him and live with God's kingdom. So think about this, right? The question, the love of Jesus and the, and the grace of salvation. So first, the question of the man. So as we said, this is a man who's wealthy. Um, and so he's a person of means. And in that particular cultural setting, almost certainly he was a landowner, which would mean he's the equivalent of some sort of business owner, right? He's a person beyond ordinary means. That's just who he is. But he's also a faithful Jewish member of the community, right? He's a religious person. He's, he's trying to sort of live out of this vision of that, of that which God has promised and, and, and said. And now he's come to Jesus. And he wants Jesus, out of his own curiosity about what he sees of Jesus, about what he may know of Jesus inside of his cultural setting. And he, he simply wants Jesus to sort of affirm that he's on the right track, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we hear the word eternal life, and we go all kinds of weird evangelical ways with it, but that's not at all what, you, you know, we think, you know, individualized ticket to heaven, so to speak, right? That's kind of where we go in an evangelical setting when we hear the word eternal life. But what the man almost certainly would have meant by a phrase like that is the coming of God's kingdom itself to earth, Right? How do I know I belong to God's future? How do I know I belong to this world of justice and goodness and truth and beauty that God says one day will invade our earth and that's all there will be? How do I know I'm in that? That's his question. It's a very earnest question. It's an honest question, if you will, right? This isn't a trap like we saw last week uh, that's being set for Jesus. This is an earnest desire to sort of know, am I a part of this thing that God has promised and says is coming? Am I a part of that, right? And so he comes on his knees, which is a sign of his own contrition and, and, and humility in a sense, you know, maybe. 
And he addresses Jesus as good teacher. Now, immediately, sometimes we, we, you know, and Jesus makes a big deal of this, right, himself in the dialogue. But, you know, what's going on there? It, it's probably just a form of flattery, right? This is, a, this, is a, this is a way in which this man is affirming Jesus in the hopes of what? That Jesus will return the favor. That he'll have some affirmation, some word of acknowledgement over his own life. And the way he goes with the commandments might suggest he thinks there's reason to give some affirmation. You know, yeah, buddy, you're on the right track. I say something nice about you. You exchange the favor by saying something nice about me. And we all walk away from the interaction feeling pretty good about ourselves. How do you come to Jesus? Like when you, when you approach him as the good teacher, right? The person who might have some instruction about what it means to inherit the kingdom of God or what it might mean to be belong to this promised great kingdom of God in which humanity thrives because the justice and reign of God has arrived. How do you approach him, right? Do you, do you come on your knees? Do you come with flattery? Do you come sort of quid pro quo? Do you come sort of thinking that if you just say the right thing, he'll say the right thing back? Do you want him to look into your life and rightly diagnose where you are? Is that what you want in that interaction? When you bring your questions about meaning and purposeful living and about God's future, coming to Jesus, asking our questions. Now, secondly, right, the love of Jesus. So Jesus... um, observes immediately that only God is good, and he calls some attention to that as he interacts with the man. But then almost immediately, what does Jesus do? He says, think about the commandments of God, right? That's where where he takes him. Of course he took him there because Jesus was Jewish. He lived inside of the Jewish world. He lived thinking about the Jewish law, and in fact, he understands his own life to be a completion, right, of the Jewish law itself, right? So Jesus says, let's think about the faith community that, we're, that you're a part of, and how are you understanding what God has already said about living inside of his world, right? The theologian Robert Jensen says of the Ten Commandments that they are, we can conceive of them as a very brief summary of what a just and a loving people would look like inside of our world, right? So there'd be things like no killing. When you pull up your citizen app, that's, those things aren't showing up anymore, right? No killing, no theft. There'd be no sexual infidelity inside of relationships. There'd be no sort of envy and competitiveness in between us when we think about our relationships with one another. And there'd be some appropriate form of sort of like familial honor and piety and love and generosity. And there would be this space of worship of God. Law, he says, is in the Jewish sense of Torah, which is a form of guidance. Now think about this about what you know about Israel as it's delivered out of slavery. People that have lived in a bound and frustrated and abused way of life, what do they need? They need their imaginations opened up for something more. A number of years ago, there was a member of our congregation who worked with the FBI, and when he was back here on a trip once, he told this really amazing story of working with a woman that had, um, had lived all of her life, really, sort of growing up in these really broken contexts of the organized criminal world, right? And so it had been a part of, like, uh, the, the drug dealing community, and her life had been a pawn inside of the drug dealing community. So she, so think about it, she had lived 
in a community that always lied, that always hid, that always covered up, that always manipulated people to do other things so that the people of power inside of that community could get ahead just a little bit more. This was her whole life experience. And so when she met this individual, the very first thing he said to you, I will never lie to you. I will never lie to you. And I will never manipulate you. And I will not promise you things that I cannot actually deliver. They work together for two weeks as they're trying to sort of do a sting operation on another group of individuals that she had been a part of, her old community, right? And in those two weeks, the relationship sort of flourishes. And at the end of two weeks, when she has to go into her space of incarceration, she weeps. Why? Because her imagination for the possibility of relationship, of a life of love inside of a community, had been just blown up. The commandments of God gestured toward that world in which human beings live with God in a certain way and so therefore live with one another in a certain way that leads to flourishing and love and goodness and beauty. The commandments enlarge our imagination for the world that God actually promises and that's where Jesus takes this wealthy young man. And he's essentially asking him to think about like, well, how does your life map onto that reality right now, like today. <laughs> How are you living inside of that community? Because all the commandments that Jesus focuses on, right, you notice that, right, they all deal, right, with the way we live among one another, right? Murder, theft, defrauding, right? These are commandments that relate to our life together, right? Uh, and he doesn't go first to how are you living with God? He says, well, how are you living with one another? That's where Jesus goes. And he wants to know how this man's life is mapping onto that. And the man says immediately, what? I've kept these commandments since I was a youth. So read child, right? Our child word, our children word, our youthfulness is coming back in, right? I've kept these commandments since I was a kid. And this brings us to the very center of this story. And it is so astoundingly powerful and beautiful. Mark says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. He looks on him and he loves him and says, you lack one thing. Now, I want you to think about your own relationships for just a moment. What is it like to hear a hard thing from someone that loves you? And what is it like to be the person who loves someone but must say a hard thing to another? What are those relationships like? So you know, this is the context, right? What, what would it have felt like for that man right there in the midst of his earnest question to experience the penetrating gaze of Jesus' love? I, I, I just, that's the question, right? I, I, I just, I can't wait to physically experience that. Can you? To be so in front of Jesus and to know that he's gazing upon my life with such utter love like that, what will that feel like? Like, what will that experience of love be like? And what's it like in your everyday relationships now when it happens? It's hard. It's challenging, right? Most, many of us don't even want to go there, right? Because some of us prefer to avoid the hard conversations, right? You, and you know who you are. I know who I am, by the way. Um, 
what is it like to be in ordinary spaces of human relationships in which you love and you care for someone and you've had to say a hard thing to that person or you've had to hear a hard thing from that person? What is that like? Think about those experiences for a moment. See, I think in those moments, as few as they may have been in your lifetime, you know that that hard thing wasn't just simply that person being snarky. You know that they weren't being mean when they said that thing. You know that it's not born of their own sort of projection of their own struggle with intolerance, right? They just can't deal with difference. Or it's not them sort of envy. They envy what you have versus what they have. And you know that it's not them just simply being their judgy self but you know that they've shown up to say a hard thing in your life or you've shown up to say a hard thing in their life simply because of love. That's what's happening here with with this man. These kinds of intimate conversations are never easy, but they are always a profound moment of of love and deepest kind of connection and deepest intimacy rather. And and, and that's what's happening in this moment when Jesus looks upon the man, he says, hey, but you lack one thing. And then Jesus goes and he begins to explain what that one thing is. Listen to it again. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. Then you'll have wealth in heaven that is in God's world and in God's future. And when the man heard this, he was shocked and he went a great grieving for he had many possessions. Salvation like that feels impossible. Because Jesus seems to be asking this man to give up a good thing in his life that's working for him. And it feels impossible to give it up. Have you ever felt that way about something that maybe God wants in your life, that he interacts with you, that he loves you, and he says, there's one thing we need to sort of think about together, right? Have you ever felt that way? When you hear Jesus' words to this man, he thinks impossible. Now, when you hear his words to this man, what happens in your own thought process? Like, that's what's interesting here, right? You're reading along, and what do you do with words like this, right? So maybe you're in the room today, and you're thinking, I am not in the 1%. I am not even in the top 10% of earners in the world, right? And you're thinking, this does not apply to me. This applies to them, right? So almost, so like, there you go. We, that's where we naturally go, right? I'm, I'm not there. And so I'm going to worry if this is someone else's lesson. This is not my lesson, right? Do you feel that way? Or maybe there's this inclination, right, to spiritualize the story, right? This is a great spiritual metaphor. Spiritual poverty is a beautiful and lovely thing. And I am willing to have more of it, just not literal poverty. Right? Where do you go? What's happening in your mind as you're listening to this story? Or maybe, right, you're thinking, okay, maybe I'm sort of up there towards that 10%, right, in terms of wealth, personal wealth, whatever. Maybe that's where I am and that's where I live life. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest, Lord, I'm there. But I'd rather have the words that you said to Zacchaeus 
And so your mind runs to like that story. Remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man was he, right? He's, he's a tax collector, right? He, so he's, learned, he's earned his income almost certainly by defrauding others, right? So there's a lot of illegality in his life, no doubt, or a lot of uh, manipulation of wealth in his life. There's certainly that going on. He's a product of empire, right? That's who Zacchaeus was. He's an obvious bad guy. But Jesus doesn't like say to him, hey, sell everything you've got, Zacchaeus. And so I'd much rather live with the Zacchaeus story, right, than the wealthy young ruler story. Right? That feels better to me. How are you thinking about this text this morning, right? The problem is, whenever Jesus looks on us and he loves us, he always is willing to put his finger on the one thing or the two things, or the three things that get in the way of us letting go and receiving fully the gift of his salvation. It just gets in the way. Grace is hard. It's not, it's beautiful in those moments when I feel like a failure or I feel unworthy and I think, yeah, I need that. But what I'm often secretly wanting in those moments of failure is, doggone it, I wish that I could stand on my own two feet because that's where I prefer to be inside of my status. Jesus says, become like a child. And that's what this text is about, and that's what this is about. We always try to explain Jesus away in some way. So he's more palatable. We can add him to our lives. We don't have to reorder the loves of our life by his love. We get to sort of stay in charge and stay at the very center. So if Jesus were to look on your heart this morning, on the interior of your life, and you're, you're praying that prayer, Almighty God, before whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secret thing is hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your name. That's the prayer that's on your heart this morning. What would he say? What would it look like for him to begin to purify the thoughts of your heart, to reorder the loves of your life, to change and challenge the way you hold on to your life, the way you think about your life? What are the gaps that he would see? What other love challenges and competes with his love inside of your life and inside of your own story? Wealth for this man apparently kept him from becoming childlike before God and receiving the kingdom. Mark says that he went away grieving, which is an interesting word choice, right? The man goes away grieving. In our society, in our moment, in our culture, how would you go away? You know, some people might go away and become cynical because there's just another religious person that wants your money. Maybe you go away angry because, Jesus, you just asked two dog on much of me in my life. Maybe you go away dismissive about it because you spiritualize the problem that Jesus has identified in the man's life and you don't understand that he actually is inviting the man into a literal posture of emptiness. The man grieved because he knew that in Jesus' love he had put his finger on something real. He grieved. He sensed his own attachment to these things as the way he would hedge his life against loss in this world. There's fear there. There's something he's not willing to give up there. So finally, the gift and the grace of salvation. What is it? How do we enter it? 
So the man goes away, right, and Jesus has another private moment with the disciples, and he's explaining things. He's sort of going deeper with the disciples. And then he says, right, it's really hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Again, we're having problems with that probably as we listen to it. And the disciples had problems themselves because, you know, Mark says they were perplexed. But this is very confusing because here's a good guy. He's moral. He's sort of living with, mostly with, his, with the commandments of God in a favorable way. And Jesus says it's really hard, right, for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus continues and he says, children. That word again. Children. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember that you have to become like a child to let go of your sense of status, whatever it is, that gives you a sense of standing in the world. See, we all live with some notion of the good life, some notion of what we will act, what it takes for us to sort of live in a fruitful way in this life. And maybe it's built around ideas of wealth, and maybe it's built around ideas of, uh, of sort of being a progressive person, right? You hold certain values, and you sort of, you're, you're an activist of some sort, right? Maybe it's built around sort of idle ideas of educational attainment, that you go to the right universities, or you get the right degrees and credentials behind your name, or you're on the right career track inside of your field of vocation, whatever that is, and you're just checking off the boxes, moving up and up and up. Jesus says you have to hold even those good things with an open hand and enter the kingdom of God as children. We have to relinquish all that we are and all that we have in order to receive the greatness of the kingdom of God. And none of us do that naturally. None of us do that naturally. And yet Jesus invites us to that space. And he gives the disciples this really weird illustration, right? That it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Some people think that's a reference to a small gate in the wall of Jerusalem. And maybe it is in which camels had to deload before they could go into the tiny gate and whatever. But, and maybe it is, but the whole point is simply what? It's hard. Nobody likes to open their grip. Nobody wants to be in a statusless position ever. And yet Jesus says that's exactly where you need to be. Is salvation possible? Jesus' answer is yes, it is. Why? Not because of you and because of your desires, but because of God and his desires. That is your hope. As Paul puts it, speaking of Jesus, he was rich, but he became poor for our sakes, that in him we might become rich toward God. And then Peter speaks up. He's ever the external processor. Remember, Peter talks a lot. He, he's like, it is all on the surface of Peter's life. It is always out there. You always know what's going on inside his head. And that drives some of you crazy, and some of you are just like him. Well, Jesus, we've given up everything. We've done, we have, we've done that. He's checking off a box, right? We've done this. We've, we've given up everything in order to follow you into your crucifixion where we're all going to die, right? We've done this. And Jesus says, look, anyone that does this, that opens their grip, receives a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, interestingly with persecutions, by the way, and in the age to come, eternal life. 
and you're listening to this and other questions begin to surface for you, right? And you're thinking, wait, has Jesus gone over to this sort of Joel Osteen camp? Is that where he's sort of gone, that, that it's possible for me to have it all in this life? Is that what he's sort of articulating? Is this prosperity theology at its worst, its best, its most hopeful? What, what's going on here? And the answer is no. Jesus rather invites Peter to understand that to be a part of the community that he is bringing is to now be a participant in the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of abundance and not scarcity. And it particularly has reference to the way these individuals are living life bound together inside of community. And yes, it happens inside of a world in which persecution is still real, in which opposition will happen, in which people around you live by alternate values and means of life. Remember that the commandments of God, right, they gesture toward a very different way of living in God's world. God's people liberated out of slavery to now enact the likeness of God in their life with God and in their life with one another do what? They welcome the statusless. They live toward the need of the world differently. They live toward the world as God lives toward the world. We've said this quite often that usually often in the context of confessing our sins because sometimes it's so hard for us to get to a place of humility like that that St. Augustine often would say that the best way to stand beside your fellow human being is as a fellow sinner. Why? Because it's in that space as one who has received God's grace as a child that I'm able to welcome them as a fellow child, statusless one before God. When you jump further into the storyline of Jesus' life, it will culminate in tremendous suffering and the cross, his death, and three days later, resurrection. And then after the ascension, Jesus will send the spirit at Pentecost. And Luke describes this beautiful thing that, you know, in many ways, it seems like it happened ever so briefly in the life of the church and maybe in such a spotty way in the life of the church that as people receive the Holy Spirit of God in Acts chapter 2, they begin to live with their possessions differently. So they bump up into a need inside of the community and someone liquidates their savings account in order to provide for the need of the other. And the point is, yes, it seems crazy, but people love like that. They were living like Jesus lived in the world. They're becoming poor for the sake of the needs of others. So when we think about this particular interaction that Jesus situates us in and offers us this morning, remember this, that he looks on you and he loves you. And in a most intimate way, he would put his finger on those gaps in your life, those places where you'll struggle most with a relationship of grace where you're most inclined to retreat into the status that you bring to Jesus rather than the status that he gives you. And he says, I love you. I see the whole of your life. And he begins gently to put his finger on things so that all the poor, the powerless, and all the lost and lonely, and all the hearts that, yes, are content, and all who feel unworthy, and all those who hurt with nothing left 
become the voices that cry out, you are holy. And your holiness isn't a holiness that would sort of keep us at bay, but a holiness that would welcome us in so that we're a part, so that we belong to the future that Jesus has promised and is bringing. This is his story, and it's his invitation to us to be so loved by this God that we might unclench our fists around our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words this morning and what they mean in the context of our real lives today, where we are in our own journey with you, or where we are in our own questions, or our own disbelief, our own uncertainties, or our own sense of comfort with what we think we know, that we would, in a fresh way, just remember that you are the Savior who looks on us in love. And in that most intimate space, you invite us to so much more than we currently have. Would you help us to open our hands and be willing recipients as children of the kingdom that you promise and the kingdom that you give? In Jesus' name, amen. The offerings